Matthew chapter 27. Obviously, we're at the crux of everything, the center of human history as we come to this place in Matthew's gospel. Last week, we left off in verse 32. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by name, and him they compelled to bear his cross, to bear the cross of Jesus. And tonight we pick up here in verse 33, and it says, And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. So they come to Golgotha, Aramaic, the place of a skull. Uh, and the other Gospels call it Calvary. This means skull, cranium. You go to Skull Chapel, whether you know it or not. We, you know, people call churches today skull this to be cool, but I think Calvary's way cool. But it is Skull Chapel, and we're glad that you're here. And uh, they came to this place outside the gate. It says, let us go to him without the camp. And he's led outside. And uh, to be crucified, he's collapsed under the weight of the cross. Simon the Cyrene has been forced by the Romans to pick it up and to bear it for him. And they're on this way to Golgotha. Um, when we go to Israel, you can still see the, the semblance of a skull, the eye sockets and the nose and the mouth in the side of the hill there. Of course, they've built a bus station right in front of it, which is a huge bummer. Um, but when we go with the guides, we go to a place where you can kind of get up and, and get a view of it. And when Christ was crucified, he wasn't crucified at the very top, it seems, um, you can't go up there now today anyhow because D.L. Moody, when he was in Jerusalem, he went up to the top of that hill and preached the gospel. The Muslims were so incensed that they fenced it off. Nobody's been up there since Moody. But uh, it seems like it was at the top of the hill in the sense of where that rock has fallen away. And there's a face there, which would have been the Roman road. It would have been outside the Damascus Gate, the North Gate. And it was there by the side of the road because the Romans wanted to see as many people to see someone crucified as possible because it was so brutal. Um, they say at one time on the Apian Way outside of Rome there were 60 miles of crucifixes. 60 miles of people crucified. And uh, often it would take days for them to die. That's why... Pilate is shocked that Christ is dead in six hours. Um, I think the longest crucifixion on record is 13 days, and the shortest one is 32 hours. Uh, sometimes they would be eaten from the feet up by jackals. They weren't way up in the air. Or, but uh, you can imagine the scene of 60 miles of crucifixions and what that said to anybody who would dare counter Rome in any way, shape, or form. Isn't it interesting that God sent his son into that world? And when Jesus got here, it says it was the fullness of time in Galatians. And when he got here, there was no First Amendment rights. There were no Second Amendment rights when he got here. God sent him into a hostile, hostile World where the light of the gospel would shine brighter because of how dark it was at the place that he came to. And he changed the world, coming into this most brutal of times, this Roman rule. They had bludgeoned the world into submission. They take him now to this place, Golgotha, Calvary, and it says... When they get him there, they give him, and the day, in one other place we hear there are, are women there, there are people there that were merciful, and they would give someone vinegar mingled with gall, but when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. It was to anesthetize. It was a painkiller before they began to be nailed 
to the cross, the women of Jerusalem, there were different leagues, they would give someone, particularly someone Jewish, this vinegar mingled with gall to drink, and it would help to deaden the pain. It was an anesthetizer. And it's so interesting, it says when Jesus tasted it and knew what it was, he refused to drink it. He had come to fulfill a divine purpose. And that divine purpose is that he would take upon him the sin and the suffering of us all. And he refused to touch anything that would deaden the pain that he had come to bear. Look, there are so many in our world today, and so many that you know, that try to anesthetize their pain with alcohol, with drugs. The substance abuse is to kill loneliness, it's to kill pain, it's to kill, you know, something inside. So many people begin the process of getting painkillers for surgery or something, and they end up addicted. You, we're an anesthetized culture and society. But you don't have to anesthetize that pain because somebody who loves you already went there and he bore all of it, more than we can imagine. And then you go to him and he, he saves you and he fills you with his spirit. And his spirit, wouldn't he wouldn't taste any of it. He wouldn't take any of that. You don't have to take it. He's given you life. You don't need to be anesthetized. And the world we live in still would try to pull us down and have us stoned and have ruin our families and ruin our lives. No, Jesus, as soon as he tasted what it was, he wouldn't take it. He was there to bear all of our pain. And that victorious spirit lives in us now. What a remarkable picture as we come to this place. And it says, and they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, there's a reason, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, that's David, King David. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they did cast lots. By the way, when you study through the scripture, the first time we have a picture of this hill it's Mount Moriah, and it is in Genesis chapter 22 when God tells Abraham, Take thine son, thine only son, whom thou lovest. It's the first time the word love is in the Bible. Take him to a place that I will tell thee of. And it says, Abraham took Isaac, he went to worship. First time the word worship is in the Bible. And when they get to the hill and they leave the servants behind and it's just the father and the son and Abraham's heart is broken, Isaac says, Father, behold the, the fire, the wood. Where's the lamb? First time the word lamb is used in the Bible. And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. Not for himself. God will provide himself a lamb. First time lamb is used in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? First time the word lamb is used in the New Testament. It's not in Matthew. It's not in Mark. It's not in Luke. It's in John. And the first time it's used answers the question of the first time it's used in the Bible. Where is the lamb? First time the word lamb is used in the New Testament. John the Baptist points his finger and says, Behold the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. The first picture we have of this place, Moriah, and you would do sacrifice at the top. You know, you have the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today, and on that slope of Moriah, the Temple Mount, but that was not where Abraham offered Isaac. The Muslims believe now under the Dome of the Rock is where Abraham offered Ishmael. But he would have been offered at the top of the mountain. That's Calvary, Golgotha, Mount Moriah. In fact, God said, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. 
And Genesis 22 gives us the perspective of the father's heart. What was it like for Abraham? Leave the servants behind. Take his only son whom he loved. It tells us in Hebrews that Abraham believed it was, if it was necessary, God could raise him from the dead. He believed it was necessary God could raise him from the ashes because he laid him on the wood to burn him as a burnt offering. What was it like for Abraham to raise his arm with a knife in his hand? The only one who knew what that was like at that moment was God the Father in heaven. Because his son had been offered before the foundation of the world. And if you want a sense of the Father's chemistry in the crucifixion, you go to Genesis 22 and you watch Abraham. If you want a picture of the Son's perspective of Golgotha, of Calvary, you go to Psalm 22. It says that these things happen to fulfill the word of the prophet. That's David. Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it's the only place that you find out that when he's on the cross, he says, they've pierced my hands and feet. David wrote that before he even knew what crucifixion was. There was no crucifixion for hundreds of years after that. In Psalm 22, it's, the Lord says, behold, all of my, my bones are out of joint. The only f- place we can find out when he hung on the cross, what it was like, that he, his, his, he, he, his arms were out of the shoulder sockets from hanging. His bones were disjointed. And it says, my tongue is cleaving to the roof of my mouth. Dehydration. And it says, there great bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. They're gaping on me like lion's mouths. That surrounding Christ on the cross was Satan and these great bulls of Bashan, these fallen angels were surrounding him. It's hard for us to imagine, but that gives us Christ's perspective. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us the Holy Spirit's perspective and how he would take all of that and give all of that to us, remarkably. And the Lord says to us here, and they crucified him. A lot of detail in Genesis 22, I mean, yeah, in Psalm 22. Here, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, just says it like this, and they crucified him. I don't want to talk about it. You know, my dad once, sitting in the living room, he was 83, gone for a while, World War II, Guadalcanal, at Pearl Harbor, two weeks after it happened, pulling out body parts, and Midway, Okinawa. Never talked about it. I never knew. 83 once we're watching this thing on TV and something happened by mistake and the Japanese government was asking for an apology. An American submarine had surfaced and sunk a Japanese fishing trawler. And my dad said, oh, you know, it was 83. Why don't you apologize for, for this? After I said, yo, dad. And he just sat back and tears started to roll down his face. He said, this is what it was like to be there, pulling body parts out from compartments, cutting open with a torch and finding these men. He said, I can still smell it. I can still see it. I'll never forget it. Never told me his whole life. And here, God the Father just says, and they crucified him. And they crucified. He doesn't say more than that to us. And they crucified him there. I imagine how broken his heart must be. They parted his garments, casting lots, as it says in Psalm 22. They're gambling over his clothes. And the Lord says to us that it might be fulfilled. And these Roman soldiers have no idea that they're fulfilling God's word. That's not why they're doing it that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet David. And it says in Psalm 22, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Remarkably, that's written out 
so long ago. And sitting down, they watched him there. It's hard to, you know, what was that like? You know, it tells us in Luke, the first thing, there's the seven sayings of Christ. You know, first is, you know, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then it seems John, he says, you know, behold, woman, behold thy son. John, behold thy mother. Then there's the thief on the cross saying, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. The third saying seems to be, um, you know, truly today you'll be with me in paradise. The middle saying of the seven, number four, we have here tonight, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. After that, he says, I thirst, John tells us. They give him water to drink. Then he says, it is finished. And then it says, Father, into thy hands, so I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. The interesting thing here is he refuses the drink. They start to nail him to the cross. And it says in Luke's gospel, as they're nailing him, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And it's a present tense there, which means he was saying it over and over. He didn't say it just one time. He's in agony. And over and over he's saying, Father, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're hammering through his wrists, nailing him to that cross, pleading. And the Roman soldiers are listening to this. They've never seen anything like this before. They take him and they stand him up. And they're gambling over his clothes. And it says they're watching him. They watch him. He's brutalized. He's beaten beyond human recognition. Crown of thorns. Blood all over. And it says, and they set up over his head his accusation, which was common with the Romans, written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate is giving the business to uh, to the Jews, because he didn't want to crucify him. They kind of forced his hand. He said, I'm washing my hands. I'm done with this. So when he puts him up, we're told, too, it's in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. By the way, the Hebrew version of that looks very much like Yahweh when it's written out. They, they, they put him up there, and uh, right over, it says, over his head. Now, that's how we know that this was a cross. Some Scholars try to say it was a big X. That's ridiculous. They, they crucified on crosses. Some try to make it like a T, which is there. But this is written over his head, which means it was the full cross with the cross beam and then the part of it that went higher. That's the only way they could nail it above his head. And it said, this is Jesus, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, king of the Jews, the religious language the political language, the language of culture, they put it there. Pilate giving them the business. And it's there that Mary, you know, Simeon said a sword's going to go through your soul, you know. When he was a baby, brought to be dedicated, and Mary there is looking, you know, her son, unimaginable. John, his cousin, Christ then speaks to them and puts them together. It's interesting when John comes to Ephesus where he spends probably from the time he's 60 to 90, tradition tells us he brought Mary with him there to Ephesus when he came. So she seemed to be with him years later. It says, then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left hand. God sets all this up, by the way. There's a divine picture here that we're going to look at. Um, and these were just, you know, deliberately, these are just thieves. That's all it tells us. They're thieves. They're, they, they don't, you know, they're, they're equal distance from the Savior. There's three crosses. You see the picture everywhere around the world. Three crosses. You know, two thieves on either side of them. One of them, at the end of this day, ends up in paradise, and the other one ends up in Hades in torment. And it's done that way deliberately. Look, they're equal distance from the Redeemer. 
And it says initially they're both railing at him and mocking him and screaming at him. But somehow they must hear him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Somehow they must hear him, Mother, be, woman, behold thy son. You know, John, behold thy mother. Somehow in the middle of all this, one of them realizes, how can he do this? He's, he's beaten worse than we are. He's in the same pain. You know, and one of them finally says, hey, man, we're here justly, but this guy, he didn't do nothing. Stop screaming at him. And he turns to Jesus and says, Lord, incredible for Christ to hear that on the cross. Lord, he didn't know the sinner's prayer. He didn't know the four spiritual laws. He said, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. What a gift to Jesus. But isn't it an interesting thing? None of them have any cred. They're both thieves. One's not better than another. That's like us sitting here today. And the remarkable thing is the middle cross is where there's way more sin, way more than these thieves. On the middle cross is the sin of the world. Says in Isaiah 53 that he laid on him the iniquity of us all. People think, you know, sometimes they they think about these thieves. That's one thing. But the weight of sin on the middle cross didn't even compare with what they had done. This Christ is there in my place. And they that passed by, that probably gives us the sense that it is down on the road right by the skull at the top of the hill. They that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it again in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, Come down from the cross. Likewise also, the chief priests mocking him. Religious people that aren't saved are the worst. Likewise, the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Here it is again. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. If you're the king of the Jews, come down from the cross. The very reason he didn't come down from the cross is because he was the son of God, the Messiah of Israel and of you and I. That's the very reason he stayed on the cross. These guys are telling you, if you're the son of God, oh yeah, if you're the son of God, come on down. If you're the king of the Jews, come on down. He is and he will. He is the king of the Jews. He is the son of God and he's coming down pretty soon. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. He is and he is. He's coming down. Timing wasn't right here. But he's coming down, that's for sure. How prophetic. He saved others himself he cannot save. That's the whole point. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. Isn't it interesting if he will have him? For he said, I am the son of God. And now, of course, it tells us the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same at his teeth. And it's in that process in Luke's gospel that one of them finally says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So this Scene that develops this day. This this is three hours now into the crucifixion. He's been on the cross for three hours. They're mocking him, making fun of him. These are the supposed to be the cultured religious leaders of the day in their robes and their you know. The, the, and it's the irony and the cruelty is just to me unbelievable. It says this in verse 45. Now. From the sixth hour, by the way, that's high noon, 12 in the afternoon, that's noon. It says there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Matthew just tells us there was darkness over all of the land. 
Some try to say, well, it was a cloudy day. It was overcast in Israel that day. Luke says it this way, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all of the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened. That's why it was dark everywhere. It wasn't somebody blocked the light of the sun. The sun itself got turned down. Interesting picture. Look, Luke, who writes later, who no doubt, Dr. Luke, he had to train in the Collegium Archatorium. He had to get his doctor's license do the last two years in Rome, uh, finally, but he could have trained in Alexandria and Tarsus. There were medical schools throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, he was fluent in Greek. We read his writing, the book of Acts. He was a great friend for a Hellenistic Jew named Paul the Apostle. And Luke knew the Roman laws and the Greek laws. He was familiar with that world and no doubt had heard it says he came back to Jerusalem, probably while Paul was in Caesarea, and he said he interviewed eyewitnesses and so forth. But he knew this darkness was broader than Israel. Again, some say, well, this was a uh, an eclipse. That's because they don't know what they're talking about back then and now, because it was Passover. For it to be Passover, it has to be full moon. For it to be full moon, the moon's on the opposite side of the sun, not blocking the sun. Interesting thing is there are records that can be gotten. I couldn't memorize these, so forgive me. There's a Syrian Greek pagan historian named Thallus, and he writes a book called The Third History. Thallus wrote in his historical book in Syria in A.D. 52, only 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, Thallus wrote that darkness totally covered the land in the time of the Passover in the year we now call A.D. 32. Julius Africanus, a North African Christian leader, writing in A.D. 215, mentions Thallus's account of the darkness. He says the whole world there was pressed by the most fearful darkness. The rocks were rent by an earthquake, and in many places in Judea and other districts, buildings were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in his third book of his history, call, um, calls it as it appears to me without reason. And this is Tertullian writing saying, he calls it an eclipse of the sun. The Hebrews celebrate the Passover on the 14th day according to the moon, and the um, passion of our Lord fell on that day before the Passover, but an eclipse of the sun takes place only when the moon comes under the sun. Julius Africanus explained that Thallus' theory for the three hours of darkness was unreasonable because an eclipse of the sun could not occur at that time. Modern astronomers confirm what Julius Africanus had said, um, there are two important points. First, Thallus, who was alive at the time that Jesus' death occurred, confirmed that darkness covered the earth at the exact time recorded in the Gospels. Second, the fact that there was a full moon present makes it impossible for it to be an eclipse. It must have been a supernatural event. Second record, uh, in A.D. 138, Phlegon noted the astonishing fact that this great extraordinary eclipse of the sun distinguished among all that happened occurred in the fourth year 202nd Olympiad, which was the 19th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor of Rome, or 32 A.D. on our calendar, the year of Christ's death. In his chronicle, A.D. 300, the Christian historian Eusebius quoted from Phlegon's 16 volumes, all which things agree with what happened at our Savior's Passion, and so writes Phlegon, an excellent compiler of the Olympiads, in his 13th book, saying, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was a great and extraordinary eclipse of the sun distinguished among all that had happened before it. 
At the sixth hour, the day was turned into dark night, so that the stars of the heavens were seen, and there was an earthquake in Bithynia, which overthrew many houses in the city of Nice. Third account, Tertullian, Church Father A.D. 160-220, wrote... He said, the event of supernatural darkness was recorded in the official Roman government archives. These are really the interesting things. They were in the official Roman government archives and that the record could still be consulted in his day. Tertullian wrote a book entitled Apology that defended the Christian faith and the gospel account of Christ's crucifixion. At the same time, at noonday, there was great darkness. They thought it to be an eclipse who did not know that this also was foretold concerning Christ, and some have denied it, not knowing the cause of such darkness, and yet you have that remarkable event recorded, he says to the Romans, in your own archives. Tertullian also wrote, and yet, nailed upon the cross, he exhibited many notable signs by which his death was distinguished from all others. At his own free will, he, with a word, dismissed himself, his spirit, anticipating the executioner's work. In the same hour, too, the light of day was withdrawn when the sun, at the very time of its meridian blaze, those who were not aware that this had happened predicted about Christ, no doubt thought an eclipse. But you yourselves have the account that it happened at Passover. Couldn't have been an eclipse. The Christian martyr and teacher Lucian of Antioch died as a martyr uh, under Nicomedia during the reign of Emperor Maximinus Daza, A.D. 312. Lucian wrote that the Roman Empire's public archives contained a record of this supernatural event that established the miraculous nature of Christ's death on the cross. Look into your annals. There you will find that in the time of Pilate, when Christ suffered, the sun was obscured and the light of day was interrupted with darkness. So the idea is you can find these things recorded in history. It wasn't in the land of Israel. It was throughout the whole Roman Empire, which was the known world at that point in time, that this darkness came. It says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. So for three hours, this darkness. And what happens when this hits? doesn't say it got cloudy. doesn't say it was hazy. This is darkness. It was no doubt like the darkness that came on Egypt when the land of Goshen was still in the sun. No doubt like the darkness that's going to come on the Antichrist kingdom in Revelation chapter 16. This was a supernatural darkness that came. I guarantee you, when that took place, everybody went silent. All the mockers shut up. What do you do if you're riding on a donkey or you're driving a chariot? you got no headlights. What happens all of a sudden when everything goes black? Our people are scurrying, looking for oil lamps and lights. The whole world and all of Jerusalem go into blackness. The religious, le- religious leaders shut up their mouths. The Romans are astounded. They've never seen anything like this before. Pitch blackness comes at noonday. I've been in the Middle East many times. And that sun is blazing at noon. And for that all of a sudden to go black, you have to realize the impression. What's happening here? What's taking place? And it says, in that blackness, about the ninth hour, about, almost at three in the afternoon, not quite there, Jesus cried. He shrieks. He screams. And it's with a loud voice, megalos. It's very loud. He screams out. And as he screams out, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Matthew says, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He screams with a loud voice out of the darkness. What was that like? The darkness had kept everything silent 
for hours. And then all of a sudden, you can't see, and here's this voice, and he's screaming, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He never calls his Father in heaven God anywhere through the Gospels. In fact, here on the cross, he begins by saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He ends his time on the cross by saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The only time he calls him God is when he takes your place and my place. And he's on that cross. It tells us this in Habakkuk. It says, Thou art purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Why the darkness? It says God himself can't look on iniquity, and yet he says he had put on him the iniquity of us all, of the whole world. Every foul, unclean thing is on him at this point in time. It's, it's so interesting in the Old Testament, if you study the burnt offering in particular, you know, there was the fire. He endured that in this three hours of darkness somehow. This was the cup he didn't want to drink. Psalm 75, Psalm 78, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 25, Revelation 14. It says, this is the cup of God's wrath poured out without admixture. And the smoke of that cup, of the torment of that cup, ascendeth forever and forever. Those who teach annihilationism need to read their Bibles. Somehow in that cup, he said, Father, not my will, but thine be done. If, but if there's any way, let this cup pass. This is what he sweat blood over. This is what he didn't want to experience. He's in the darkness. His father, his own father, has turned away. My God, my God, why? First time in eternity. He's cut off. He had said, I don't say anything unless the Father says it. I don't do anything unless the Father does it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now for the first time in all eternity, he says, why? Which means he's cut off. He has no information. He's separated. He's separated. So that I never have to cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me in the lurch? Why have you cast me off? It's why have you abandoned me? And, and try to understand, you know, we think of loneliness. Sometimes family hurts us. Sometimes it feels like people ignore us, and we, we do a lot of things alone. We think a lot of stupid things when we're alone. Sometimes a spouse, sometimes good friends. Sometimes, you know, loneliness is one of the leading causes of the abuse of prescribed medicine in this country and alcohol and, and, and drugs. Loneliness is a plague. And you look at him there. He had been with the Father through all eternity. How is it that the Trinity is shattered at this moment? How is the eternal Son cut off from the eternal Father? And we know this. He's as far from the Father as the East is from the West. Because it says in Psalm 103, that's how far he's going to remove our sins from us. As far as the East is from the west. He didn't say north and south. Because you can go north for about 12,000 miles, hit the North Pole, and then you go south for 12,000 miles, which means God will get my sins away from me about 12,000 miles. That ain't far enough. But you can go east forever and never be going west. And you can go west forever and never be going east. It says he separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. That's how far Jesus was separated from his father. He was separated as far as time and eternity, which is immeasurable to us. He was separated as far as light and darkness. His father, in unapproachable light, he is in a blackness that's unimaginable. He's separated as far as heaven is from hell at this moment. Bearing our sin, all of that upon him. And look, the thing about the picture, there have been many Christian martyrs. 
But the promise to the martyr is, I will never leave you or forsake you. Because our Savior was forsaken. He differs from every other. He's not a martyr. He's bearing our sin. And God the Father has to turn away from him because he can't look upon sin. And he plunges him into this darkness. And somehow, when he comes out of that darkness, he said, it is finished. Before he died physically, he had died eternally. He had died spiritually. He didn't just come to die physically for us physically. He came to die eternally for us. He died spiritually for us. And it's hard for us to imagine this darkness, what it meant, what it felt like, what an experience, what it was like to hear his voice screaming out of it when you couldn't see anything and you could only hear this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's astounding to look at this and to think what's taking place. I think, you know, I have two sons, you know, I think... I can't imagine one of them being in a situation that I have the means at my disposal to rescue them. And they're screaming to me, Dad, what are you doing? Why'd you get me out of here? What are you doing to me? for me to remain silent. How great the pain of searing loss the father turned his face away, we sing. And then the answer that comes from heaven is eternal fire. He becomes the propitiation for our sins. He becomes the place where God's eternal wrath is satisfied. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and he became the propitiation for our sins. You know, in, in the Old Testament sacrifice, it wasn't just that the blood was shed, the sacrifice was then burned. And somehow in these three hours of darkness, there was an eternal suffering. The cup was drunk to the dregs as it was. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's because of me, by the way, because of me. And some of them that stood there when they heard that, said, well, this man's calling for Elijah. Because he was, you know, and it tells us in Psalm 22 that his tongue is cleaving to the roof of his mouth. So it's unintelligible. It's not clear. He's dehydrated. He's screaming. And it says, straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. It's not cruel. Vinegar was mixed with water to kill worms, and you didn't want protein and water at the same time. Um, the, the picture is this, that Jesus cries, I thirst. And he couldn't even say it clearly. His tongue was cleaving to the roof of his mouth. One of these men, in a gracious gesture, Jesus says, if we give a cup of water to one of his disciples, we could never lose a reward. Sometimes the smallest things we do for the Lord are written in eternity like this. But it was very important. He, he, he puts that sponge, the lowest form of life, lifting it up to the highest form of life. You know, and he, and he sucks that water in, and it loosens his tongue from the top of his mouth because he has a victory cry to give. And he doesn't want it to be confusing at all. And it says, after he drinks the water, then he screams, it is finished. To tell us die. Paid in full. It's done. You know, in the Roman prisons in that day, you would serve a sentence. And when the Romans had counted out the day, if you didn't get leprosy and somehow you survived a Roman dungeon down in these dark places, they'd come and they would nail a sign on your door that day when your sentence was over and it said, to Tetelestai, paid in full. That's what Christ screamed on the cross, and it was for us. He didn't pay for himself. We owned, you know, had a debt we couldn't pay, so he paid a debt he didn't owe. 
paid in full. Look, he doesn't have a mortgage on you, okay? You're bought. No mortgage. And I know you feel like, well, he didn't know what he was getting or he would have taken a mortgage. You know, he could have claimed bankruptcy on me and gotten out of it. No, no, no. He knows from the end, from the beginning. People say, you know, I feel like I let the Lord down. How can you let down somebody who knows the end from the beginning? You let yourself down, so you think you let him down. You can't let him down. He knows what he was getting when he bought you. He's not saying, oh, another lemon, that was a bad year. No, no. He knows what he has in you. He loves you. He knows our weaknesses and our failings. He bought us anyhow. He wanted his tongue loose so he could say that to you and to me. It's finished. You ain't, but it is. I'm not done with you yet. I'm conforming you into my image and likeness. But it, the payment for your sin, past, present, and future, is done. You know, we got pregnant moms in the church. And those babies are going to be born. Their sins were paid for 2,000 years on the cross. He paid for sin past, present, and future. Those little sinners are coming into the world. And their sins were paid for as well. Completely finished. Completely done. Paid in full. It's over. He wanted his tongue loose so he could scream that out. Luke says it this way. It's interesting. Luke tells us, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, that's to to tell us die, he said, Then he said, no longer screaming, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. He was no victim. He was here It was prophesied he would be there. He's cooperated with the word of God. He wants it to be fulfilled. He's there and he's accomplished something. And we spend our entire lives, you know, I think we get saved and then we're growing in grace and the knowledge of who he is. You know, it says in the ages to come, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be learning about his grace and glory. It's infinite. It's eternal. We, we couldn't comprehend it all now. We couldn't take hold of it all. We walk with him in faith. And it says, whom he forgives the most ends up loving him the most. The more you face the fact that you are a low-down, dirty, good-for-nothing sinner that don't deserve to go to heaven, and that he loves you anyway... You will be mad about him. You'll be crazy about him. You don't know anybody like that. Not your wife, not your husband, not your relatives, not your boss. Nobody. But him. But him. He looked at Peter when the first time I met him and said, I'm going to change your name to Rocky. It's going to be a problem for a while, but you're going to end up to be a rock by the time this is all over. And so will we. Paid the price went into an unimaginable loneliness so we never have to go there. Never have to go there. There was was an anguish between him and his father that is immeasurable, incomprehensible, worse than any sense of betrayal anyone's ever experienced in this world, worse than any sense of loneliness anybody has ever experienced. He went to the farthest measure of it when he took our sins and was separated from his father and had to scream, why? Why have you forsaken me? It says, he gave me the vinegar to drink. Then they said, rest. Let's let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And then Jesus, when he had cried, that's the tetelestai, again with a loud voice. Then he says, quietly, with a quiet voice, Father, in thy hands I commend my spirit. Look, it says he yielded up the ghost it didn't kill him he yielded his, his, his work was done his work was finished it was complete he said it it's finished and when it was finished he didn't need to be here anymore so he yielded up the ghost he departed it says and behold this is an imperative you need to think about this behold the veil of the temple was torn in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks were rent. Same word for the veil being rent. The rocks were rent. was in order to, for God to rend one and the other. The Talmud tells us, Jewish ancient writing, that there was a quake 
in Jerusalem 40 years before Titus destroyed the city in 70 AD. That's when this happened. The Talmud records it. Josephus, in his Wars of the Jews, book 2, page 299, says there was this earthquake in Jerusalem in this year. There's a secular recording of this. It says there's this incredible earthquake that takes place. The veil in the temple, it's the time of the evening sacrifice, three in the afternoon. Many of the priests are there. It's torn in half from top to bottom. We know that it was 55 cubits. It was 80 foot high, and it says it was woven a hand's breadth thick. You know, so you got seven, eight inches. You know, you might see somebody could tear a telephone book in half and be impressed with that. That's okay. But this was an 80 foot tear from the top to the bottom. There weren't any 80 foot soldiers or priests around. It was torn from the top to the bottom, and it was woven this thick. That was a terrible noise. That was a terrible noise. Christ died on the cross, gave up the ghost. The ground starts to shake. The veil is torn from top to bottom. And it tells us in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that many of the priests came to the faith, especially the ones that were scurrying out of there. You know, I bet they did. And what happened at that moment was it ended the sacrificial system. There is no more sacrificial system that God recognizes. It tells us this in, in the book of Hebrews. I'll find it. Be patient with me. It says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, because of that, coming into the world as he was coming to the world to the manger in Mary's womb being born in Bethlehem coming into the world he saith sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body thou hast prepared for me or fitted me for burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast thou, in burnt offering sacrifice for sin thou hast had no pleasure then said I lo I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O Lord. What a remarkable thing. He dies on the cross. The sacrificial system is fulfilled. Every lamb that was slaughtered in the Old Testament had looked forward to that lamb and that to Telestai. That, it is finished, that cry. Now the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom, and we don't need a priest anymore. Don't need a pastor. Every one of us here has free access to a holy God through the blood of his son. There's a lot of veil menders around today. They want to reestablish a priesthood or they want to put somebody between you and God. Ain't nobody between you and God. Jesus Christ took care of that. You're his son. You're his daughter. I don't want anybody between me and my kids. I don't want the butler saying, uh, Sir, uh, Hannah is asking if she might have a chocolate chip cookie. You go tell her to wait till dinner time. You know, you, the father said you need to wait. Get out of the way, man. Let her come over. It's drive me crazy. That's her job. Right? He paid the price because he wants you and I, in our imperfection, to come to him in faith, knowing that he paid the price on the cross and that he suffered an eternal death in darkness so that we never have to do it. And the amount of pain and loneliness and agony is immeasurable, but it covered you and I, and it's paid for. And there is no more sacrificial system. There's no system now that any person can insert that could ever improve on what he did. There was an earthquake. Rocks are cracking, breaking apart at this point in time. And I love this, and when I see Matthew, I'm going to say, what in the world did you write that for? You know, come on, Matthew. You know, scholars have argued over this for a long time. He says, Matthew then says, and the graves were opened. Those, those are sepulchers, and in the sepulchers, they have a box where you're, you know, what they do is when you died in Israel, they put you in a sepulcher. Sepulcher, uh, sarcophagus means flesh eater because the humidity and the limestone would cause your body to disintegrate. They would come back in two years and scrape your bones together because everything else was dust, 
and they put them in an ossuary. There was a box where they put your bones, and that way, when the next person in the family died, there was a vacancy. You could put them in there. So what is he telling us here? Look what he says here. He said the graves were open, and he's specific. He says many of the bodies. This is physical resurrection in one sense. The bodies of the saints, those are Old Testament saints, which slept, the bodies were sleeping, they arose. The idea is from the dust. And they came out of the graves after his resurrection. He was the first fruits of those who fell asleep. And they went into the holy city and appeared unto many. This has to be real resurrection. You know, Lazarus came back to life, but he didn't appear and disappear. He died again a second time. Bummer. Would have named son, you know, uh, Jairus' daughter, um, Tabitha in the book of Acts, back to life, then dying again. These guys and gals come out of their tombs in their bodies and they appear like Jesus. They appeared and disappeared. They're appearing in their bodies. This is some remarkable class of resurrection we don't see reproduced anywhere. When you see Matthew, you're going to say, yo, you could have given us a little bit more. You know, he caused problems in the church for 2,000 years with that info. You know, it's, it says they came out and they appeared remarkably unto many. And now, all of this in mind, now this happens before they rise, because the centurion takes us back to the cross itself. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion. That's a 25-year hitch. Centurion. 100 men under him. These guys were studs. Everywhere you read of a centurion in the Bible, they're class act. He's there at this deal. He hears, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Here's a crucifixion. He's never heard that. He hears, woman, here's your son. John, here's your mother. Here's saying to the thief, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He hears, the sun goes out. The centurion's also, he's not a centurion all of a sudden. He's a little baby. The sun is gone, and he must be trembling. And out of the darkness, he's going to hear, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then the lights come back on. Somebody gives Christ some fluid, and he screams, it is finished. And when he does that, he gives up the ghost. Centurion had never seen anything like that before. And all of a sudden, the ground starts to shake and rumble. The rocks are breaking and falling away. And it says, all the things that he had seen and heard, the centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. Interesting, because Luke said to the Jews, you know, when he tells the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man at the end, he says, you know, even they got Moses and the prophets. They're not willing to believe them. Neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. You know, Matthew's going to tell us that they they paid off the, the guards at the tomb and said, hey, if anybody comes and asks you, tell them the disciples stole the body. Isn't it interesting? The, the Romans are affected by this, and the religious Jews are still more concerned about their position and, and their paycheck than they are about truth and their own Messiah. This centurion, you're going to meet him soon. He said, truly, this was the Son of God. He didn't come away from this an agnostic. I don't know. Maybe this, this happens once in a while. You know, it's hard to explain. No. Truly, this was the Son of God. Look, you're here tonight at several things. If you're under condemnation, the Bible says that's from the devil. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. They both feel lousy. 
But conviction pushes you towards Jesus and condemnation pushes you away from Jesus. You can tell by what direction you're being pushed in, whether it's the devil or whether it's the Holy Spirit. You know, at this point in my life, I flee to him. When I make a mistake and I do something wrong, I'm not hesitant at all to run to my Savior. Lord, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe it. I'm 70 and I'm still a knucklehead. Lord, forgive me. I thought this would be, I had this under my belt a long time ago. Lord, just, but, but my access to him is so more open. It's so much freer because I know more than ever what I am and what I'm not. And I know what he is. And I read through these crucifixion scenes and I am astounded. When we go there to Israel, you know, you're there at the, the at Golgotha at Calvary, and I stand there and think, two thousand years ago, all of my sin was here on the sin bearer. The Father in heaven laid on him the iniquity of us all. He put on Jesus all of my lust and all of my anger and all of my selfishness and all of my abuse and everything I've done wrong and he, he bore it all here, here, I'm standing here I'm, I'm feet away from where this took place and, and in time and eternity it's astounding don't you leave here and listen to the devil tonight you hear me? don't you leave here and listen to the devil tonight because God the Father loves you. He made the most unimaginable sacrifice to make you his own. God the Son loves you because he gave himself in your place so you could come to the Father. God the Holy Spirit loves you because he's trying to drill this through our thick skull over and over and over. The truth of this. Putting it in our hearts. So then the love of Christ could be shed abroad from our hearts to an unsaved world. We have something the world needs to be infected with. And nobody else is contagious with it but us. And our contagion fixes people, makes them better, doesn't make them sick. But this is the root of it. This is the epicenter of it. This scene at Calvary, this, what took place on the cross, that it says even in the ages to come, it's going to be it's going to be growing. It's going to be blossoming. It's going to be more and more beautiful. It's going to be larger and deeper. The, the, it, you know, to see him in his glory and realize what he did for us in human flesh. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. If you're here tonight and you don't know him, I'm going to have the musicians come. We'll sing a last song. If you don't know Christ, if you've never come, look. You, you look at this. Forget about church. It's not church. It's not Calvary Chapel. It's him. It's him. Do you know him? He was there. Your sin was there on him. He did that for you. This is a relationship, not a religion. If you have never come to Christ ever in your life, as we as we worship tonight, we're, let's stand, let's have the musicians come, we'll sing a last song. I encourage you, you can walk forward while we're worshiping, or you make your way up here after the service. We would love to pray with you and give you a Bible to read. But let's thank our Savior, amen? I mean, and go sit here alone during the week. You know, people say, I'm going, you know, going through this, going through that. I'll say, go sit at the cross for a week. Just every single day. Before your day's over, sit at the cross. You know, the Jews in the Old Testament had the morning and evening sacrifice. Every day began with the blood of a lamb, ended with the blood of a lamb. It should be the same for you and I. Sit at the cross for the next week, every day. Look up. Look at him. You can do that in your heart. Listen to what he's saying there. Father, I know you've overheard. Lord, no human agency can bring this to human hearts, Lord. Only your Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for your word, Lord. We know it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides down in us between that which is soulish and that which is spiritual. Let that happen this evening, Lord. Sanctify us, Lord, through your truth. Your word is truth. We know that it is effectual, as Paul tells us. Because, Lord, it brings us to you. It is the book about you. And we know the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Lord, give yourself to us in greater measure, Lord. Just every one of us, Lord, let us have that moment tonight, somewhere before we go to bed, to put our head on our pillow, just to rehearse these things, Lord, and ask you to make them more real to us. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you. And uh, we are still learning who you are, Lord. And as Paul says, that we might comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the Father's love towards us in you, Lord. We commit that to you. Lord, we want to grow there. We want to be gushing your love to an unsaved world. Rivers of living water, Lord, you have to make that happen. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name and for your glory. Receive this as it rises now from our lips and our hearts, Lord, this song. Lord, we look to you and and we offer this sacrifice of praise.